I'm Bridget Trung. And I'm Tom Yanni. On today's episode, we're chatting with clinical therapist and founder of Shift Collab, Megan Rayfuse, about the stigma behind therapy, anxiety in the workplace, and ways to foster a positive environment. This truly is anxiety and advice on how to handle it. So, Tom, I've been really pumped up since our first episode last week. Tell me about it. I was actually shocked to receive feedback. You know, you start something, you put it out there, and you don't know if people are going to listen or yeah. if they're even going to be receptive. But I got really nice messages, and it was so lovely. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I was getting some positive feedback, too. So, The main thing that I, uh, I think hit a chord with a lot of people was me bringing up therapy. Yeah. I mean, albeit short, but a lot of people resonated with that. And I had a lot of fellow entrepreneurs just say... Therapy, me too. I love therapy. Oh my God, you go? <laughs> just then they're going to like this episode. They really are. I'm super, super pumped because uh, we're going to be chatting with my friend Megan Rayfuse. Now, Megan is a clinical therapist and she is a speaker. She owns a couple practices, Shift Collab and Disrupt. So she's heavily involved in the mental health space and she talks to entrepreneurs very often about their struggles. I'm really looking forward to this too because we're really focused on trying to create kind of a healthy environment for our staff. So it's interesting to, to hear about these things. So let's get her on the phone. Let's do it. Hello? Hello? Meg, how are you? Great, how are you? We're great, thank you. It's Bridget and Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to chat today. Yeah, really great meeting with you. Thanks for taking some time this morning. Thank you. Tom and I, um, on last week's podcast, kind of delve into therapy a little bit because I've been going regularly, which I love. I think it's just the single most important investment anyone can make. I think it's even a better investment than a house these days, but that's just personally my, <laughs> my opinion. Um, and so we really wanted to talk more about um, therapy and entrepreneurship, how uh, mental health is obviously a hot topic right now. First of all, I mean, I love that you're speaking out about therapy and saying, you know, it's worth the investment. It's worth, you know, spending the money, maybe even more so than a house because you know, having good mental health is what keeps our emotional health in order. And so thank you for sharing that. And I'm always so excited to connect with people who are just excited to talk about emotional health and mental health and how it impacts every single aspect of our lives. Do you think that there's still a stigma around talking about it openly? I find that it's on the decline. I don't know about you, Tom, but I feel like it's kind of more out in the open now for most people, but they're, it's, it's still intimidating. I think my thought was that in the past, if somebody said I wasn't feeling well, it would be like, I'm going maybe back like 15, 20, 25 years sort of thing. It might've yeah. been like, oh, what's wrong? Is, is your, you have a headache, a stomach ache, or are you injured in some way? It was like, no, I just don't feel good. And it's tough to quantify, but then I think over the last little while with, you think of like Robin Williams, you think of, Kate Spade, you think of Anthony Bourdain, these are situations where seemingly these people have had it all and it all kind of fell apart and they ended up taking their own lives and that really makes everybody recalibrate their thoughts mm -hmm. on these types of things and makes you think like, wow, if it could happen to people like that, it could really happen to anybody. Yeah. So um, 
I think major moments like that have really, really kind of impacted the social dialogue around this and consciousness around it. But Megan, really curious to get your take on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what I tend to see at least among my clients and the clients who visit my clinic, it's often times when there's big headlines, you know, around Kate Spade or Robin Williams or Chester Bennington. You know, it's, oh my gosh, I didn't realize they were that bad. And I say that bad in quotation because I think we have this idea that we can only talk about mental health challenges when it's that bad. Mm-hmm. But what happens when we wait until it's that bad is that we are at higher risk of suicide. We are struggling with our functioning. And my work is to change our dialogue and to challenge that stigma that you have to be that bad before you go seek help. Um, oftentimes I say to my clients, you know, seeking help doesn't have a prerequisite of how awful you have to feel. Typically it's, you know, if you're struggling with anything, if there's something that you're debating, if you're having a hard time making a decision, those are the times that seeking help is mostly beneficial versus waiting until you're so-called that bad. And while I am you know, grateful that we are changing the dialogue around mental illness and seeking support for mental health. What I am kind of struggling with is how do we talk about it in a way that celebrates accessing help versus, you know, talks about it after the fact when these people who have completed suicide maybe could have had help that could have kept them alive if we had changed the dialogue in a different way. Megan, with Shift Collab and with Disrupt, you work a lot with entrepreneurs, right? Yes. So recently, uh, we actually, through my company, Shift Collab, we actually just launched a new program called Shift People. And through that, we actually support entrepreneurs and corporations and employers around managing the mental health landscape at work. And in my practice over the last 10 years, uh, primarily with what I like to call entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs, uh, both tend to carry very much of, uh, let's just say, a similar kind of trait of being highly motivated and really driven and like always seeking the next best thing and looking for, you know, when I, when I reach this marker, when I get the goal, when I hit the profit, when I get the promotion, when I get the partner, I'll finally feel enough. And as part of that, uh, I've learned, hey, how can, we, how can we tackle this sooner? So the goal is how do we tackle these thoughts um, in the workplace? Imagine if you show up on your first day of work and someone says, you know, hey, it's really normal to struggle with maybe feeling like you're not good enough or maybe feeling like you're an imposter here. And we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about strategies to deal with that. And so through my work with entrepreneurs and highly driven people, I've learned, one, that even if you're feeling alone, you're likely not. All of us have these types of thoughts. And two, we need to build in programming to support these thoughts at work, in our communities, in our coffee shop, where us entrepreneurs might be hanging out, in our co-working spaces, um, in order to normalize the challenges that we feel, because 
you know, being an entrepreneur myself for the last 10 years, I promise you that you are not allowed. It's really insightful hearing this. So uh, we run a company here. We, our staff is growing. What are some of the tips that you give to people running a business to create a workplace that is just more conducive to people feeling good about themselves and feeling part of a team, just a good, comfortable environment for people to come to every day? I love that you asked that because that tells me that you're thinking about the culture where you spend most of your time, which, you know, could be at work. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the most important thing that I always suggest for uh, people who care about the mental illness in their workplace is to actually say, well, what are people telling you? So when you're on the ground, when you're, you know, standing by that coffee maker at work and people are saying like, oh, I'm so tired, I was up late at night, maybe they're putting out invitations. And oftentimes we don't have practice looking for these invitations. So we might say, oh, okay, so you're drinking a lot of coffee today. Oh, that probably means you're tired oh, I'm tired too, like, why don't we go get a coffee this afternoon? My uh, favorite thing to challenge people to do is when you're at the office and you're standing next to that coffee machine and someone's saying they're tired, ask them, what is it that's keeping you up at night? What's causing you to have trouble sleeping? What's going on? Because the way that we inform really healthy workplace culture is by paying attention to what our staff are saying paying attention to what your colleagues are saying. Um, Oftentimes, traditionally, you know, in mental health care, especially around the big mental health programs and EAPs and employee assistance programs, uh, we tend to, you know, I'll I'll admit it, my my profession tends to historically take a top-down approach. So we're gonna tell you what is right for you and we are going to build a program around what we think you need. My goal in my work with Chef uh, Lab is to say, let's start opening the dialogue about what's actually going on and what it is you need. Uh, we actually created a program called What's Your Big Lie, where we have people uh, in a room, say in a keynote or in the office, you know, I do this often in, in break rooms or at startups in the big rooms with the ping pong tables, and what we do is I, I run a workshop and I get people to text in anonymously to questions like, what do you wish your peers knew about you? What are you afraid to talk about at work? What's holding you back on the day-to-day? What do you celebrate about your peers? And they text in anonymously in real time. It shows up on a screen. And the coolest part of this is that all of a sudden, the energy in the room changes and sometimes it feels like the air is just like sucked out of the room. But we start to be able to name the things that we are actually dealing with. And when we can name what we're actually dealing with, we can build healthy strategies to actually address it. So my long-winded answer to your question is, you know, start noticing the invitations that people give you. Pay attention if people say they're not feeling well or if they're tired or if you notice someone having a hard time speaking up. And ask them what you can do. So just if people are saying, you know, I've been really tired, I'm not sleeping, you know, say, well, I'm curious, is there anything I can do to support you? That's how we start to build healthy cultures in the workplace. What about people like myself who work from home often, who don't have coworkers or 
you know, collaborative partners on the daily. There's a lot of work pressure that comes with kind of running a business on your own or being a freelancer or creative. So what if you don't have that person to lean on and really touch base with or find commonalities with to open up? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I actually, prior to becoming a therapist, I used to work a full-time job uh, where I worked from home every day. And the first few months were really awesome, and I loved working in my pajamas. However, I started to notice big shifts in my mood. Now, with um, our culture moving into more people working from home, more people working on the road or, or away, or you know, essentially working while isolated, we do know that it correlates uh, with a higher risk of depression and anxiety. So, in order to manage your mental wellness, what I suggest to people who say, you know, I don't really have that network. I don't, at five o'clock, there's no one coming into my bedroom saying, all right, it's time to go be social now. And so what I always suggest is build a support network into your role. And so, you know, being a freelancer working from home, there are other freelancers working from home that you can also connect with. Reach out to those people that you admire who might also live in your city and ask if, you know, maybe you have once a month coffee dates. Maybe then it becomes once a week. Maybe you have an online group where, you know, you have a commitment that every Wednesday we meet on a Zoom call for 20 minutes and we talk about anything other than work. So we build a connection around our personal life and what's going on. Um, I'd also communicate that to loved ones, to your partner, to your friends and say, I work from home, my job is typically isolating. Even if you love, love, love what you do, which, you know, oftentimes I hear a lot from uh, entrepreneurs that we very much love what we do. Um, It's so important to have social interaction. Connection is the biggest protective factor against mental illness. Um, I joke and call it vitamin C. Uh, and it's more important than eating your oranges because connection will actually serve you better. It's a healthier form of vitamin C. And so the goal is, is just to match. The other thing that comes with this, and I was chatting with a client about this last night, was sometimes we plan it in. So we're like, oh, totally, I'm going to go meet my, you know, my fellow freelancer after work. For dinner and during that day you might notice oh I have this on my calendar I'm supposed to meet you know Jim for dinner but I'm starting to feel like I don't really want to go and I'm really tired and I don't feel like it and what I suggest is pay attention to what those thoughts are telling you call that emotional reasoning and tell yourself that I'm not allowed to make decisions based on what my thoughts are telling me, I'm going to show up and have dinner with my friends, and then I'm gonna decide if I still wanna be there. So the example, pretty much the same as when it's time to go for a run. You know, most of us can say, oh, I don't really wanna go, I'm really tired, I don't feel like going. Um, But once we're running, like in the first two minutes, usually we're like, okay, I'm glad I came. And that's what I I encourage people to do is don't listen to that emotional reasoning. Our present self is always the most laziest version of ourselves. 
So our present self is going to say, no, you don't want to do that with your time. Our past self, who made the plan, was super excited about doing it. Our future self, who's going to look back and say, I'm so glad I went to dinner with Jim, is going to be excited you went. So challenge that instant gratification, lazy self in the moment, who's going to be that mean roommate in your head and tell you you don't want to go. Meg, have you been reading my diary? (laughs) (laughs) I have not, but I wish I could because I promise you that you are not alone. And and you know what? The best part of my job is, like, allowing clients to see that I'm human too, right? So how many times am I like, oh, I signed up for this thing. I'm so tired. I'd rather go home and watch Netflix. There's a whole series of dead to me that I would rather watch than maybe show up uh, to see a friend for dinner. But once I'm at the dinner, I'm so glad that I didn't stay home alone with my TV and my dog. Which sounds pretty nice, actually. <laughs> that doesn't sound terrible. But it's funny because... There's a time and a place. You can't see me right now, but I'm just making these mind-blowing gestures to Tom because I have been battling anxiety for years, but it's been really bad, I'd say, the past year. And I've never been able to attribute anything to it until now. I feel like that's a really simple answer. Being an entrepreneur who works in isolated environments often could actually put you those in those anxious states because you're not around other energy. You're not around other people. You're not around to really vent about whatever problems you're having. And normalizing it. Like, yeah. you know, there's something really great when you can lean over to the next desk and say, hey, are you feeling as stressed about this project as I am? Um, but when we work for ourselves or when we're isolated at work, we don't get those little moments of interaction. And so all of this frustration and overwhelm and anxiety can build and ruminate in our minds, and we don't get to fact check it with people um, next to us. So the goal is to build in your own sense of fact checking, but also allow for more social interaction, which is healthy and enjoyable. So in a, Meg, in a world where we're spending more time online and our digital lives are... Um, kind of catching up to our real world lives in terms of time spent and people are spending so much time on their phones. And you mentioned that connection is the vitamin C that I'm assuming you're referring to kind of like human connection. I'm thinking of, you know, real conversations, looking somebody in the eye, being able to give somebody a hug, these types of things. But now that uh, we are spending so much time online, how do you sort of reconcile that? And do you have any advice or have you spent much time talking to some of your clients about the role that online and cell phones and that the internet in general plays in our world nowadays and how to balance that with maintaining that connection in a real world. I'll be the first to admit, I also engage in the compare and despair. So someone that I'm talking to right now named Bridget has a really awesome Instagram account. <laughs> and what, you know, I, I'm equally as guilty. I'm like, oh, how can I... Instagram photos look as good as hers. How can I make sure that I'm getting across the right message? How do I get another like and follow? And, you know, our society often is built around comparing ourselves to curated versions of ourselves. And we look at other people and we say, well, if they operate this way on the day-to-day, because my brain isn't able to say, oh, maybe this person took 20 pictures, 
and from all these different angles and paid a professional photographer and really spent a lot of time planning that outfit so that it would look really great, my brain doesn't recognize that. My brain is like, they took one photo, this is their day-to-day life, you know, their life is perfect, and I'm going to start comparing. And I'm comparing against my own life and what I perceive to be my own shortcomings against something that might not be an accurate comparison. And so what happens is we tend to be in this compare and despair mode and what it'll impact our self-esteem. So we start to feel, well, I'm inadequate. I'm not good enough. So despite any kind of evidence of success, sometimes what happens is we start to say, well, you know, even though things are going well and my friendships are awesome and my relationships is really stable right now and I'm loving my work because I don't have an Instagram feed that looks as good as that, it means that I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so with social media, what I encourage all the time is just to name it when you're comparing and despairing. So just when you feel those feelings, usually where you notice it in your body, you might feel anxious or your heart beats or you feel overwhelmed. The goal is to say, all right, brain, you're comparing and despairing let's slow this down, what actually tells you that you're doing a good job. And what we can also do is look for the good, right? So when I compare, I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. Instead, I can say, I'm grateful that, you know, I have a steady paycheck this month. I'm grateful that I just signed the new deal. I'm grateful that my friend Bridget has such a creative eye to make her Instagram look so good. And, you know, the goal is, to shift that mean focus that's going to say that you're not good enough into challenging that critic to say, no, 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 I am enough. So with social media, um, that's the number one I see with my clients is the compare and despair and that instant feeling of inadequacy. And that's just a function of how our brain works. Our brain actually just can't compute it. And so what we have to do after the fact is to say, I need to slow down. I need to remind my brain of the reality. I need to look for the evidence that says I am enough and I'm doing a good job. And I need to sit in that positive evidence so that I can move through it and not let this impact my mood. Um, The other thing with social media is I think for a lot of us, it can be pretty overwhelming. I don't know about you, but being bombarded with like you have your DMs and you have your Facebook Messenger, and we all have texting and Slack, and, you know, you could go on, and oftentimes it's this feeling of, well, I'm not good enough, or people are going to judge me because I haven't written, like, I didn't write them back quick enough, and I want you to challenge that, too, because what happens is we're hyper-aware of how we're communicating, because with social media, we have the ability to edit ourselves. In real-life interactions, we don't. Mm -hmm. So I want you just to be aware of that to say, you know, I'm not a failure if I don't reply to you for two days because this is a different form of interaction than it is when I'm I'm with you face-to-face. I think something that social media has done too, um, and I'm not saying this is, oh, I I guess there are some negative elements to this, but what social media has done is kind of made um, optics, uh, positive optics, whatever you define to be an important way to have others view yourself as a main priority. And we started off the podcast by talking about imposters. And that was a conversation we briefly brought up last week, how I 
kind of felt like for a bit a fraud um really not acknowledging you know my journey um my accomplishments and that's why i got back into therapy because i thought oh my god i think people are viewing me a certain way and am i that person i just started to question every fiber of what i was doing all the work that i was producing do you think social media and imposter syndrome has a strong correlation yes and so thank you for sharing your experience um it's often one that i struggle with too is you know in running shift collab and working i manage a team of 60 therapists we run a student assistance program where we support about 200,000 ontario students we just launched our first employee assistance program and Oftentimes, people will come to me and say, wow, this is amazing. I see what you're doing online. Like, it must just all be so awesome. And I have that feeling where I'm like, oh, no, I don't feel like it's always so awesome. Like, ooh, do I actually know what I'm doing? Who am I if people are perceiving me in a certain way that I'm not perceiving myself? And I'm saying, oh, no, they're perceiving me as someone I'm not. Well, I'll have people say, like, you look like you're doing amazing. Oh my gosh, I've been following along. Everything's going so well. And they're telling me essentially that things are going so well because it's based on what they're seeing. Meanwhile, I'm, I've been a ball of anxiety. You know what I mean? Um, I'll have breakdowns every now and then in the shower, but those are things that you just keep to yourself. So it's that there's that dissonance between what I guess people believe and how you actually feel, but you don't feel like everyone really needs to know how you feel because some of that stuff is sacred. Yes. And part of it is, you know, allowing yourself to acknowledge that their perception of you doesn't have to be what you use to define yourself. Because with imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, it's essentially the idea that um, we work really hard and we you know usually most people who experience imposter syndrome are like high performers you're doing a good job but you have this inkling in your mind that even though there's all this evidence you're doing well that you're inadequate and so oftentimes the thoughts that come with it are things like oh my gosh people are going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing people are going to realize that I don't belong here you know oh that was just luck that I did a good job I just got lucky or I'll fail no matter what I do. So I have to be perfect in order to show people that I'm enough. Mm-hmm. Um, people won't value me if they know the truth. So, you know, as a therapist, especially when I first started out, I always thought, well, I have to play the part. So even if I'm anxious, even if I'm struggling, I have to play the part of having everything together. Because who am I to help someone if I don't have my own stuff together? And I remember sometimes feeling paralyzed by this this fear of, well, here I am in my personal life. You know, I remember one time exactly, I was going through a breakup. I was struggling. I was feeling so alone. Um, And here I was going in to session, and one of my clients was like, well, but you just have it all together. And, you know, you probably have all the skills to deal with a breakup. That's why you can help me with it. And there was a moment where I said to the client, I said, look, I'm human too, and I am struggling, and I struggle with breakups too, and that's okay. And part of it is to give ourselves permission 
at certain times, I mean, I'm not going to go to share this with every client every time, but at certain times to say, I'm going to challenge your perception of me because it helps me to feel better about me. It helps me to know that I don't have to be perfect and it helps me to be seen as I am in a way that I want to share it with people. And that's the goal in challenging the inner imposter is to start saying, you know, what I think people think about me doesn't have to be more than what I know to be true about me. So I really know what's going on for me and no one else's perception of me is going to define what I know to be true about me. I just have to hold it close that what I know to be true about me is the accurate perception and it's okay to not be perfect because that's where we learn and grow. Breathing it all in. It's interesting talking about this (laughs) stuff and it's rare to actually um, have an expert on the subject. I have one more quick question for you, which is you mentioned, you know, nobody is immune to this. Even somebody that works in this area would be um, from time to time with different circumstances or conflicts in their life have their own struggles. So, um, do therapists go to therapy and how does that work? (laughs) Yes. Therapists go to therapy (laughs) and, um, it is the best thing ever. And, you know, because we're human too, uh, I need a therapist just as much as anybody else needs a therapist. And so it works in the same way. I talk about the same things and we work through the same kind of modalities that I would probably work on with my clients. And fair enough, sometimes I'm like, oh, I know what you're doing. I know you're trying to use the CBT strategy on me. And in reality, it's, you know, great, I can be suspicious, but really it's just good because I know what we're working on and I know what we're getting at and I know I have challenges to work through too. Um, And so, yeah, I love going to see my therapist. I have lots of issues that I can't deal with on my own. Um, I joke with my clients often and I say, well, you know, those who can't do, teach. And, you know, I have lots of emotions that I don't know how to manage still. And so I teach others how to manage their own and I go learn from someone else on how to manage mine. So how do you pick that person? Because I would imagine you'd have a more, (laughs) right? Like you'd have a more keen eye for somebody I don't know, you'd have just a better gauge of who the right person is or if they're skilled or kind of like tactful in their um, approach to conversation and whatnot. How do you find the right person? Uh, Probably the same way I tell everyone else to. So um, at my clinic, we we always say, you know, therapy is like dating. You're going to go through a few duds before you find the right fit. Yes. (laughs) Yes, girl. It's true. And it's... You're essentially looking, you know, you're obviously you can't be romantic with your therapist, not supporting that in this messaging, but saying that, you know, you want to make sure you have a good rapport with the person, that you feel like you can open up and share, that that person is asking you questions that feel good, that you're happy with their office, that you can get to the location, right? So when you think about therapy being like dating, well, if I show up, at a potential partner's house and I'm like, ooh, this, you know, this is a little dirty, dirtier than my standard or, oh, I just feel like on a date they're not asking me enough questions about myself or, you know, they're not upfront about what they want or where they're going. 
therapy is the exact same thing. And there is no shame in trying out a therapist and saying, you know what, that just wasn't, you know, this isn't really what I'm looking for. Thank you so much. Can you recommend someone who might be able to offer, you know, a different approach or, you know, a different type of conversation? And so with our clinic, what we say is if you're not happy with the first therapist we match you with, totally fine. It's normal. Reach out to us or we'll follow up with you and we will match you to someone else because... It's so normal to go through a few before you find one that feels like the best fit. Now, before I let you go, really want to ask you about, let's say, affordability. Not everyone can afford a therapist or see one regularly. So what's the best way to kind of find one that suits your budget and that can probably help you in whatever area you're looking to find resolutions in? It's such an important topic, something very near and dear to my heart. Um, I would love to be, you know, become obsolete in my role because, one, people's mental health is doing really well, and two, because um, our system just offers so much options through school and through work that we don't necessarily need to always go to therapy. And so... Great question. Um, I'm a big proponent of there is a fit for everyone. So um, on my team, I'll give the example of how we how we navigate this uh, with my clinic. What we do is we employ a team of care coordinators. And what they are is they are social workers by background. And if you call my clinic and say, you know, I'm thinking about starting therapy, finances are tight, or I don't have extended health benefits, or you know, I'm really struggling with making rent, which is causing me to feel stressed, and that's why I need therapy, but I don't have any money right now, Uh, my team will do their best to match you um, or recommend free and low-cost therapy options or sliding scale options, which in the therapy world means a discounted session rate. Um, So the goal is, is, you know, in my work, is always to build my team around the idea that not everyone is going to be able to afford therapy. So let's also support every single option to match people to the care that they need. So if you are looking to start therapy, there's a few avenues that you can go. So number one, you could speak with your family doctor. Uh, There are some family doctors out there who are really, really good at managing mental illness and treating Uh, stress and anxiety and overwhelm and so first conversation can be with your family doctor your family doctor can also refer you to a psychiatrist Um, typically there is a long wait however both of those options are free Uh, something really awesome that you typically find in bigger cities are mental health walk-in clinics so if you google mental health walk-in clinic in your city or if you call my clinic or any other therapy clinic and you can say you know, I'm really looking to start a mental health walk-in clinic. Can you direct me in the right direction? Who could I call? They will give you information. It's, you walk in just like you would a walk-in clinic for a physician, and it's run by volunteers who are seasoned clinicians. So um, I used to volunteer at one. It's a really great way for therapists to build their skill set ongoing. It's a great way to give back. And for, um, for many people... Uh, who come in is a great way to access free counseling. And so there's another option. Uh, If you are a student 
um, at any type of institution, you typically have a counseling center at your school. You may also have access to a student assistance program similar to Real Campus, which is the one that I run, um, and you get access to free counseling. And so there are many options for free and low cost uh, counseling. Some do come with a wait list. Um, however, uh, my job as a therapist, who typically most of my clients use their extended health benefits to pay for sessions. Some people have finances and pay out of their pocket. Um, but what we do recommend is that, you know, I'm here to also help you navigate a complicated system. So I'm always happy to answer questions, even if you can't afford to come see me. My goal is to advocate for our industry as a whole, and that means getting people mental health support in the way that they need it. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat about this. And, you know, I really appreciate your vulnerability. I think, you know, Tom and Bridget, you're really opening such an important dialogue. And how fun is it to talk about it in a way that, you know, doesn't have to seem so scary. That can be, yeah, I'm anxious when I'm home working on my computer during the day. Or I'm anxious about what people might think about me. And I think it's really awesome that you're sharing, you know, the discussion because the goal is, is if one person hears this and you feel less alone, then, you know, and you want to reach out, I'm here for you. And that's the goal in my space, which is if every single day one person might feel like they're not alone or there's hope, then I've done my job. Well, this has been really, really insightful. And we, uh, again, really, really appreciate your time today. And thanks so much. Thank you to you both. How incredible is Meg? Yeah, that was fun. That was was really interesting. My biggest takeaway from that conversation is that conversations need to be had, good and bad. Yeah. And the more we talk about these common struggles, I think the more that we will find that connection that we might be missing right now because we're just constantly on our phones. I think I don't even want to share this, but I will because being vulnerable rocks. Renee Brown. <laughs> but when I showed you yesterday, my screen time was at what? Three hours and 25 minutes. You were like 3.30 and it was maybe like 4.30 in the afternoon bad. or something like it's that. Bad. It was a bit excessive. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, I know. Okay. I'm not yeah. proud of it, but this goes to show how often a lot of us are on our phones and not just zombie scrolling, but even working. So yeah, I'm not innocent. I, I'm, I can't cast stones when I live in a glass house. It's not as if I'm not on my phone a lot too. So, <laughs> But yeah, we all, I think, uh, can be disconnected from one another every now and then. So hopefully these conversations can bring us closer together. Yeah, there were some really helpful tips in there. And I do like the approach of, you know, normally, like she was saying, if somebody, you're standing by the water cooler or the coffee machine or whatever, sitting on a couch, sitting in the lunchroom and somebody says, I'm tired and you know, maybe dig a little bit deeper. Maybe just Mm. ask that leading question to see if there is something that they, it's funny. She actually brought up the idea of sometimes people will say something like that. And I forget the exact word she used. It was like, uh, they're basically extending a palm branch, you know, they're, they're offering, uh, you an opportunity to, to kind of talk about that a little bit more deeply. And I often feel like I don't want to impose, you know, like, Sometimes I feel like I, I don't necessarily want to ask that question because I don't want them to think that um, I'm overstepping boundaries or like you just want to be respectful yeah. and professional. But at the same time, that's a really great point. If nobody takes that step, then 
what's going to happen? Exactly. Nothing. And the other person on the receiving end might be feeling the exact same thing, that they don't want to impose their shit, quote unquote, yeah. on you. So they don't want to bring up, bring it up, but they're hoping that you might open the door a little bit for them just to start talking. Mm-hmm. Well, this truly is... The end of episode two. Yes. I love that you're finishing my sentences now. We're getting there. <laughs> We're getting there. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Have a great day.